With that, let us now turn to our scripture. Uh, today's passage is Psalm 88, verse 1 through 18. It is Psalm 88, verses 1 through 18. And this is the word of God. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, to the choir master according to Mahalath Leonoth, the masculine of Heman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the lead, like the slain that lie in the grave like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit and the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors, I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Good morning, Reno. It's my pleasure to preach God's word for us this morning. My name is Luke Wu. I'm the assistant pastor here at Reno Mainline. And if you're new with us, uh, we've been going through a series of Psalms, this mini series where we wanted to show how all of Scripture, especially the Psalms, it's not simply a record of things that happened to people in the past. Uh, it's not even the record of their feelings and their thoughts and their emotions, uh, but Scripture, and especially the Psalms, they're a means for us to voice our feelings, our emotions, our thoughts onto the Lord. And so we, as God's people, we adopt the prayers and the songs of these Psalms, and we make it our own. Why? Because they are able to express the whole spectrum of emotions that life brings us. And there are a wide range of emotions that you and I experience. You're going to experience a wide range of circumstances, things that make life miserable to things that make life joyful, things that are taken away from you to things that are unexpected surprises that make you ecstatic. Now, with all these emotions, then, the question really is what someone does with the emotions that they have. 
because you can express them and you can deal with them in a healthy way or a destructive way. David Pallison says that emotions are, are a palette of responses. And here are a couple of examples of some bad ones. He says, when something goes wrong, I get angry. And angry impels me to bristle and to go on the attack. Or when something feels too painful, I turn inward and I see how unbearable it is. And then the desire for relief invites me to chase any feel goods to escape the bad feelings. Or when it seems like I can't control something, I feel anxious and I fret and I flounder. I get angry, I avoid people, I get desperate, I self-soothe, I get paralyzed, or all of the above at once. So there are these bad responses to our emotions. And like a palate, sometimes these emotions and these responses, uh, they're very muddled, muddied. He says that reactions, they rarely appear like primary colors, where it's very clearly one or the other. Sometimes they come in hues and shades and mixtures. Once in a while, you might get a pure color for a moment, but most often, uh, you're going to live your life with a mishmash of all different kinds of emotions. And the one hue that we're going to zoom in on today is grief or lament. And what grief is, it's an emotion that we modern people might not be accustomed to. It's one of those forgotten colors in the palette. But David Kessler, uh, he's one of the leading figures in this area of grief. He wrote an article a few weeks, uh, few weeks ago in the midst of COVID-19 entitled this, That Discomfort That You're Feeling Now is Grief. And in it, he shows how many of us Americans, we don't quite know how to deal with this emotion. We for sure are experiencing it because grief is defined as this. It's the conflicting feelings caused by the end of something or a change in a familiar pattern of behavior. And it can cover a plethora of situations when, when someone close to us passes away. It's the end of a relationship that's been so familiar to us and we have to adapt to a new situation, a situation we don't want or perhaps the change in our jobs, or the end of an enjoyable experience. But it's also the change of lifestyle that comes about in the midst of COVID-19. And Kessler writes that this is what COVID-19 is doing to us, and the majority of us don't know what to do with these emotions, and it's creating discomfort. And that discomfort, at least in part, that's the cause of the anxieties, the arguments at home, the frustrations with the government, and so forth. We don't know how to deal with them, but the Psalms do. And that's why we're looking at this particular Psalm, because when we think about the Psalms, we may think that they're mostly about songs and praises and celebratory worship, and that's definitely in there. But in fact, they're not the most common kinds of Psalms. Of all the general uh, different genres of Psalms, you're going to see that the genre of lament, it actually takes up a third of the entire Psalter. Even outside of the Psalms, did you know that in the Bible, there's a whole book dedicated to laments? It's called Lamentations. And believe it or not, there's no separate book of the Bible called Happiness. Why? It's not because God's not a joyful God, but it's because he knows that life is filled with grief and laments. And the Bible doesn't shy away from it. It doesn't ignore these emotions, but it deals with them head on. And psalm writers, including David, they've recorded some of the most penetrating expressions of lament in the psalms. 
And they can also be how you and I can express grief and lament during this season or whatever season of trial comes your way. And so we're going to focus on Psalm 88, which is known as the saddest psalm in the whole Psalter. It's called the gloomy psalm, the psalm of sorrows. And, and even musically, it's set to this sad minor tune, as Pastor David read, the Mahalat Lianat, which you can see in the, in the title of this passage. And even those two words in the Hebrew is translated sickness and bitterness. And we're going to look at this psalm to answer. Why, why is this psalm, this, the saddest psalm of the entire Psalter, why is it included in Scripture and what it does for us? We'll look at it in three ways. Number one, we're going to see how it gives voice to our griefs. It gives a voice to our griefs. And number two, it allows honest communication with God. And finally, it provides hope for those who don't see any hope. It's going to give voice to our griefs. It allows honest communication with God, and it provides hope for those who see none. And so before we tackle these things, uh, join me in a quick word of prayer as we seek his help to study his word. God, we open our hearts to you this morning, and we invite your spirit to make these words, not simply man's words, but the words of God. We believe that you reveal your will, who you are, how you deal with us through your scripture. So help us to receive it as such. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So number one, the Psalms, the Psalms of Lament, it gives voice to our grief. Now we know that the author of this Psalm, his name is Haman, but we don't know too much about him or the occasion, the specific occasion that causes him to write this Psalm. Now we do know that he was the leader of a musical group of poets called the Kohathites, and they composed many of the Psalms. But other than that, we don't know too much of the specifics. And I think it's intentional because it allows what he's writing to apply to the lives of countless others that come after him. But nevertheless, we can still pick up a few things of what's going on with him. First, have you ever felt like everything in your life is just full of trouble? I mean, everything, including your, your relationships, your work, your health. Because he says that in verse 3, that his soul is full of trouble. Everywhere he looks, he feels a wave of trouble battering him constantly again and again. And he uses the imagery of those waves coming up over him in verse 7. And because so, he feels like his life is, is coming to an end. Shio is the word that the Hebrews use for the underworld. And he describes his life as such. In verse 4, he says he's like one who has no strength going about the day. In verse 5, he gives this ironic picture of, of him being set loose amongst the dead, which is this picture of a man who's, who's roaming around the graveyard. Why? Because though he may be alive physically, he feels as if he's dead, as if he's living among the dead. In all this, he describes his life as being in darkness. Describes himself as being in the depths of the pits in regions dark and deep. He mentions that word darkness again and again, verse 12, in the beginning again in verse 18. And that word darkness encapsulates his whole entire situation to make matters worse. He says all of his friends and his loved ones have abandoned him. His companions shun him. 
and he's like a horror to them, that they avoid him altogether. Now let's take a step back and consider what is Hanan doing? He's voicing what he's feeling. He's acknowledging his pains and sorrows, and we overlook this. But it's crucial that we learn how to do this, because we often try to bypass this step and go quickly to the feeling, uh, feeling better about ourselves or making a, a quick solution, how to just get out of this darkness. We're quick to try to get there. Or we try to minimize what we're actually feeling inside, and we're dishonest, dishonest with the pain and sorrow that you and I feel. You know, Dave Furman, he writes that we must acknowledge the pain of loss with eyes wide open. And maybe you thought that as a Christian that you have to smile and pretend to be okay when someone asks you how you're doing. Perhaps you think that if you're grieving that you're dishonoring God, and this isn't so. He says in some ways, our grief as Christians is, is all the more amplified because our hearts have been turned to flesh from stone. You see, identifying what's happening to you and putting to words the pain that you feel helps you comes to come to terms with what's happening. Because no matter how strong you are or think you are, or whether you've, you've kept an unmoved face in the past troubles that you've experienced, there will come a day, perhaps even now or in the future, where you will feel exactly what Hanan is feeling. You will be wallowing in darkness, feeling like you're like the dead amongst the living, feeling like you're being uh, battered over and over again with these waves of sorrow and trouble. And when that happens, there are two options. We can try to take all of that and think that we're strong enough to minimize how hurt we are and how much is, is, is causing us pain inside. Or we can recognize that God is taking our hearts of stone and making it into flesh so that we ourselves can see what he's trying to do to make us recognize that we are not strong, that we are weak, and we can cry out to him. You know, I love what C.S. Lewis writes. I have this slide for us. I'll read it for us. He writes this in this book, Grief Observed. God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He knew it already. It was I who didn't. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards, and his only way of making me realize that was to knock it down. See, but the reality is, that many of us, we, we try to avoid lamenting altogether because we think and we're convinced that lamenting is weak that it's a sign of frailty, that it's a waste of time because we think nothing good can come out of it. But consider how often Jesus himself wept all throughout his life. Consider all the apostles. They are drenched in tears throughout their ministry. But when we do avoid lamenting altogether, you're going to find that the other options, the only other options you have is, is you deluding yourself or covering up what's actually going on inside of your heart the kinds of things that we'll end up doing. Jackie Knapp writes this, that one option that we'll do is we'll try to deny what's going on. Coding any negative situation with, with layers of unrealistic optimism, or perhaps pouring our energy to solve other people's problems so that we can avoid ours. Or there's the art of distraction. That's another popular choice. 
where we try to have this dizzying schedule to make sure that we're always in motion, never alone with our thoughts. We can have hardcore addictions to, to what seems to be innocent pleasures, anything. We love anything that helps us escape our pain. Or you might like to find solutions, try to research and have these detailed plan of how to fix whatever's going on in your life and have this feverish work ethic to ignore the difficulty of life. And she says that even some of us, we love the pool of pain and choose to dive in it just so that we can wallow in self-pity. You see, we can have all these different kinds of emotions. If we don't truly recognize the grief that we feel and we don't really respond the way that God wants us to as we cry out to him and voice our griefs to him. You know, there have been countless times, more than I can remember, when I would meet with various people throughout my ministry. And I would simply ask them how they're doing. And a lot of the times, you know, they'll share with me about their busy schedules, the demands of work, the craziness of their homes. And if I follow up with that question and ask, how do you feel with all that's going on? And they'll verbalize it and they say something, something, something simple as just, I'm just really tired, for example. And as they say it, oftentimes these tears will come streaming down their face. And they themselves are like, I don't know why I'm crying. And as I see them cry, it makes me kind of tear up. And I go, I don't know why I'm crying either. And it's when they verbalize, when they identify and express their grief and laments, that they experientially recognize that they are weak, they are in need of help, that they need God. You see, brothers and sisters, you and I, we may know in our head that we are weak and that God is strong. We may know it intellectually, we may know it theologically. That we can do nothing apart from God, that we are dependent upon him, but there's a major difference in knowing that theologically and experientially. And it's the latter where the beauty of grief and lament helps us because when we grieve, when we give words to the pain that we're feeling inside, we are experientially declaring that we are weak and that he is strong. Tim Keller writes this, you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And it's in the midst of lamenting that you really know experientially that Jesus is all you have, and that's the blessing. That's what Jesus means when he, when he, once, he saw, when he once said, blessed are those who mourn and those who weep. Because in your mourning, you will find that Jesus is all you have, and you see that he is all you need. And so this psalm gives a voice to the pain, to the griefs, and the laments that we feel inside. What else does it do? It allows honest communication with God. You know, we have the impression that when we speak with God, the only kinds of things we can tell him are good things and praises or just simply requests that we want him to fulfill for us. And take a couple seconds now and think about your prayer topics, the things that you pray to God about. What do they consist of? If it's like me, a lot of the times it's either praises or just requests, more often requests. But how much of it are, is my honest expressions of grief and lament when I'm in such distress? Haman, the psalm writer, talks about the ways of trouble battering him from all sides and how he's living amongst the dead. 
You know, but what drives him into the darkness, darkest of darknesses, is this. It's feeling as if God has abandoned him, especially while he's going through all of this. He cries out this in verse 14, Oh Lord, why do you cast away my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? And to add to that, it's not simply feeling as if God's not responding. Haman actually takes a step further and he sees God as the one who's causing all these things to him. In the midst of everything, Haman has an understand, such a deep understanding of God's sovereignty that God is behind all these things. I mean, look at the way he expresses his lament, starting at verse 6. I have this slide. You can look with me. He says, Lord, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overmelt me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. Do you see the language that he uses? He's complaining to God. The psalmist, he's not praising God. In fact, out of the whole passage, the passage of 18 verses, there's only one incidence where there's some kind of mentioning of God as being good. And it's in the beginning of the psalm when he says, O oh Lord, God of my salvation. And you and I know that's how often we just start out prayer, right? When we pray, we say, dear Lord, dear God, and that's it. But everywhere throughout the psalm, there's not even one mention of God being good. Now, when we consider this, our natural reaction might be to cringe a bit and think, that's no way to talk to God. Haman, his, his theology is all wrong. How dare he accuse God like this? He needs to be put in his place. But in fact, He's not accusing God as if God is in the wrong, but what he's saying is this. He's saying, God, based off of my theology, based, off, based on my understanding of who you are as God, as the God who is good and powerful and loves me with their steadfast love, based off of that understanding, God, it doesn't make sense why all of this is happening. If you are good and if you are sovereign, God, why are you doing this? That's what he's voicing. That's why in the latter part of this passage, he's reasoning with God. He's wrestling with, with what he knows about God compared to what he's going through in that moment. Look at verse 9. He says, God, I'm calling out to you every day. I want to praise you. But I'm at the end of my rope here. I'm the dead walking amongst the living. God, aren't you the God of the living? God, wouldn't you rather have me praise you in the fullness of life rather than from the grave? Do you see the back and forth going on between Haman and God, the wrestling and struggle with God? And this is not unbelief. It is not blasphemy. It's honest communication with God. Because if it was truly unbelief, there would not have been a Psalm 88. Why address God if you have no belief in him, right? It's not blasphemy because underneath what he's saying, he's recognizing, God, you're the only one who can change my circumstances. That's why he's complaining. Why would you plead with someone who you know can't ultimately help you? But he knows that God can help him. That's why he's pleading with him in his laments. You see, it's back to this idea of what he knows about God, contrasting with what he's currently going through. He knows the theology of God's sovereignty and his goodness. 
but he can't reconcile that with the experience of darkness and suffering that he's feeling. You see, Psalm 88, it is not a doctrinal, systematic theology that lists all the attributes of God and his character. And if that's what you're trying to get out of this psalm, you're going to walk away thinking it's blasphemous or that God is bad. But once you see that Psalm 88, it's capturing that moment, the experience of darkness, and see how that might clash with his theology of God's goodness and sovereignty, then this Psalm 88 is going to be the closest friend that you have in your times of darkness. Times when your theology of who God is does not reconcile with the pain and sorrow and grief that you experience. Now, some of you might think this is all nonsense and contradictory. You might challenge this idea of, of one's theology and experience being very, very different. Well, let me give you an example. C.S. Lewis once gave this. Do you know that the dentist is good? Yes. Your theology of dentistry tells you that the dentist is good, that he's working to clean your teeth and prevent decay. Now, when you're sitting in that dentist chair, when that long needle of anesthesia goes into your gums, and when you hear the grinding away of your tartar and plaque, do you feel like the dentist is good? Probably not. And do you see, your theology of dentistry clashes with your experience of dentistry. That's why C.S. Lewis says, there's no contradiction here. Have you ever been to the dentist? <laughs> now, what's amazing is this. One would think, that if this psalm is so blasphemous, that they contain words of disbelief, why would God keep Psalm 88 in the Bible? You know, why not replace it with something good, something filled with praises towards God? And it's because even in your lowest moments, even when your theology is challenged, even when you feel like every ounce of your being tells you that God is far away, that he's not there, that he's not good? Even during the days where you live as if God hates you and you push God away, when you say things like, God, why are you doing this to me? You're making my life miserable. Psalm 88 is there because even when you're like that to God, he's still your God and he understands. And he's not going to take Psalm 88 out because he's not going to take out those days in your life when you lament. He's not going to take out the days, where, the days where you have nothing good to say about God. He's not going to take them out. I love how one commentator says that the very presence of these kinds of prayers in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. He knows how men speak when they're desperate, when they're in their darkness of days. Do you see the grace of what's going on here? When all you have to say to God are complaints and accusations, it doesn't change God's orientation towards you. Just because you dismiss God, he does not dismiss you. Just because you censor God out of your life, he doesn't censor you out of his. He's still your God and always will be your God in the good times and the bad, in the days where you have nothing but praise for him, and even in the days where you have nothing but lament and complaint against him. Consider your life. Has there been days when you've had nothing good to offer up to God? Do you know 
that he was just as much your God and Father as the days where you had only praises for him? Some people called God, our God, the incognito God. He doesn't only need to be in the the greatest of miracles, the splitting of the Red Seas, but he's still the same almighty God when you feel like there's nothing there, when you feel like there's nothing but silence and nothing like darkness. And his steadfast love and his acceptance of you has never changed. It will never change, even when you're going through something like Psalm 88. Let's end with this. It gives a voice to our grief, allows honest communication with God, and it also provides hope for those who don't see any. I mentioned earlier that a third of all the Psalms are lament Psalms. But Psalm 88 is unique in one very important way. Because if you look at the general pattern of how these lament psalms go, it first addresses God, and then it it describes the speaker's situation. And then towards the end, there's always a turn, a turn that begins with words such as yet or but. For example, yet God will deliver me or but God has saved me from my distress and and I will still praise God for his goodness and so on. In other words, all the other lament psalms, there's a clear pointing to some kind of praise that has come into his life or is, is coming soon. There's always some kind of hope embedded within that psalm. But what's what's unique about Psalm 88 is that it doesn't have that. It's the only psalm in the Bible that does not have this turn of hope. It doesn't end with praise. What does it end with? Well, look at the last verse with me, verse 18. It ends with this. And my companions have become my darkness. In the Hebrew, you can literally translate it as, darkness is my only friend. It offers no change in the psalmist's situation. There's no immediate hope, nothing that the psalmist can hold on to. And this might surprise us because we've been trained to think that there has to be an immediate good ending, doesn't it? Any good story, any good movie, but there isn't, and intentionally so. Why? Because in life, there may be times where there is no immediate relief. There may be times where there is no change in your dark situation. And it goes to show that sometimes life is not neat. Sometimes the things we desperately want and pray for, they don't come. And sometimes it feels like we're still in this tunnel where all we see is darkness. See, you and I, we have a tendency to move so quickly from our darkness, from our struggles to hope, right? That we want the healing process to happen as soon as possible. See, we see lament and grief simply as a stepping stone to to just get to the good ending and the solution. And while in the gospel there is hope and there will always be hope, it doesn't mean that that hope is immediate to us in your situation. James Boyce writes this. We Christians feel like Christian work, Christian writing, like the Psalms, has to work out right in the end that there has to be a clear lesson or moral right away. And Psalm 88 is a reminder that life is not always like that. There may be a perfectly good lesson from God's point of view, and I believe that all of life does have God's divine purpose. But that does not necessarily mean 
that we can see it right away, that it will become even clearer in our lifetimes. This Psalm 88, without this immediate hope, without ending on a note of praise or deliverance, therefore people like you and me, who might feel like you're still in the darkness, and for people who might listen to this sermon, sing praises, receive the benediction, and when the service is over, you go back to your homes and the darkness is still there. Nothing has changed. It's saying that there will be times when that situation that you are in, there may not be a happy ending. Your situation at work might not improve. That thorn in your flesh might not go away. The healing that you prayed for might not be granted. Or this COVID-19 situation might not be fixed or solved at the timing that you and I want. But this psalm teaches us that there may not be a shortcut to happy endings. Beth Tanner, I love the way that she writes this, she says, the psalm also teaches a lesson about the real world. For sometimes there is no happy ending, no gap to jump in for prayer, for help, that gets us to praise. The hard truth is that people suffer and even die sometimes in horrible circumstances and crying out to a God that seems silent. It speaks to times when there is no reason, theological or otherwise, that can explain the images of violence burned into my brain. It also speaks to those, those who die, feeling as if God is nowhere to be found. For here, their words of fear and anger appears as sacred scripture, showing that God did indeed hear their cries. So then, What's the takeaway? You know, what's the application here? And the application is this. Let Psalm 88 be Psalm 88. Meaning, there are times when darkness is all you see in the tunnel that you are in. And in that tunnel, let grief, let lament take its full course without trying to force a happy ending. Learn how to mourn and grieve Lament over sickness, over COVID-19, over failures, over broken relationships, and over suffering. But do it knowing two things. The first, that even in your darkness, even though you might stay in Psalm 88 for a while, that God has never left you. And also know this, that you may be in this Psalm 88 for days, for weeks, months, even years. Know that Psalm 88 is not the ultimate end. Do you know why? Because there's a Psalm 89. <laughs> the first verse in Psalm 89 even says this, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Praise God that Psalm 88 is not the end. There is light at the end of the tunnel. Though you may not see it in this instance, and after 89, after Israel's destruction, after Israel's exile and darkness, for Haman, after all these years, comes these words, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it, and his name is Jesus, the Son of God. John chapter 1. Know that there is a Psalm 89 after your 88. That there is light at the end of the tunnel. 
and allows us to have something that the world desperately wants right now, as 1 Thessalonians says, to be able to grieve, not as others do, but to grieve with hope. Because in our grieving, we know God is there. And in our grieving, we know that there is a light that is coming to take away sin, death, sickness, and all of our tears. And we may wonder, how can God be our God in these moments? How is God able to still be our God even when our lives are filled with darkness and we have nothing but complaints and laments for him? How come God does it this way rather than simply snapping his fingers and fixing everything instantly? Why is it that God allows the time for you to grieve? And how is he able to comfort you every second of your laments? It's because he knows what Psalm 88 is like. You know, when you're in Psalm 88, sometimes the last thing you want is somebody somebody to just tell you certain things statements, pithy statements about your life to explain what's going on or to give meaning. But you see, whenever you're going through something so difficult, the closest friend to you in that moment is simply someone who's going to go through that difficulty with you. It's someone who knows what you're talking about. It's someone who has felt what you felt and cried the tears that you cried. And for anyone who hasn't, you feel like they haven't earned their keep, right? Their consolations are well-intended, but they can never get to the hurt of what you're feeling because no matter what they do, no matter how hard they try, they'll just never understand. Every religion, every philosophy, every secular advice in this world, that's all that they can offer. All they can provide is advice and well-wishes. But not with Jesus because he entered into that ultimate darkness on the cross as he carried our sins, as he carried our complaints, our accusations against God, our lack of faith in his presence, as he carried our self-centered requests that are only about making our lives better and more convenient. He carried our sins and took upon the darkness of God's wrath. And because Jesus did that, whatever you're going through, You can go to him. You can complain to him. You can grieve to him. And you're not going to be speaking to a faraway God who's going to struggle to relate or a God who stumbles over what to say to you. You're speaking to the man of sorrows, the one who was despised, rejected by men, one who's acquainted with grief, as Isaiah says, as one from whom men hide their faces because he was despised. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Having this Jesus in our lives, brothers and sisters, let us be no strangers to grief. In the words of one brother, in our laments, we'll keep reading our Bibles, even when we feel dead to God's word. We'll keep on crying out to God, even when he feels death to us. We'll keep on gathering with God's people, even when they don't understand what we're going through. We'll keep on serving others, even while we carry our sorrows wherever we go. We'll keep on sowing the seeds of truth and grace into our barren souls, waiting for the day when God takes us home. And that home is a place where there is no darkness, but the light of his glory will shine upon you forever and ever. Let us pray. Church, let us take just even a short time now 
to identify some of the grease that you might be feeling now. Frustrations over the state of affairs, sadness over the loss of loved ones, complaints about how inconvenient life is. Let's give voice to them and say, God, this is what's going on in my heart. Hear my cry. Let's do that now. Give you a few minutes to do this. Next, let's pray that throughout this course of whatever darkness you may be in, that God will make his hope not simply true for you theologically or intellectually, but more and more experientially. Say, God, I want to know. I want to know more than my head, but also in my heart, in my life that you are light. Let's pray that as we close with the, with the praise of his love for us. Heavenly Father, we are a broken people we mourn over what's going on in the world today. The shootings, the pandemic, people who are struggling on the front lines, people in other parts of the world dealing with catastrophes. God, we mourn. We mourn because there's nothing we can do at times. Feels like we're just being battered again and again by ways and ways. And God, we confess at times we wonder, God, why do you allow these things to happen? God, we mourn, mourn over our situations at home, over relationships that can just never seem to be healed. We mourn over our sins, especially the ones that keep coming back again and again. Lord, God, we are tired. We are weak. But God, we do place our trust in you, asking you, pleading with you, Lord, help us, show us mercy the same kind of mercy you showed up on the cross as we cling to you. In Christ's name we pray.